to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. On this week's episode, I speak with Mercedes Montagnus of the Promise of Justice Initiative and PAC for Justice. We continue Louisiana Lefty's ongoing discussion about what made the unanimous jury coalition's efforts to change the Louisiana Constitution so successful, and we explore other opportunities for criminal justice reform in our state. Mercedes Montagnus, thank you so much for joining me on Louisiana Lefty. I am ready. I'm excited to talk about the criminal justice reform in Louisiana. <laughs> awesome. Well, I always start with how I met my guest. And we met on a campaign that was for criminal justice reform. I've talked a lot about it on Louisiana Lefty because I see it as a model for the state. And I'm going to, quite frankly, keep inviting folks <laughs> from the Unanimous Jury Coalition to come to the podcast. But that's the campaign that we met on was Unanimous Juries Coalition for Constitutional Amendment 2 that got rid of non-unanimous juries in Louisiana. And we're working together now on Pact for Justice, which started, I think, last year on the Flip the Bench slate of candidates locally here in Orleans Parish. So that work is continuing. We can dive into all that a bit deeper. But before we do, tell me your origin story. You are a lawyer, correct? Yes. How did you connect to law? But then also let me know how you realize law and politics kind of somehow syncs together. Yeah. So my sort of entryway into all of this is the death penalty. Um, Growing up, uh, very opposed to the death penalty, um, and that was something my parents were really passionate about. And um, during law school, that's what I wanted to do. So I worked for a lawyer in Mississippi uh, and sort of got exposed to the New Orleans criminal justice community, um, met my husband who'd been here before doing criminal justice work and, and moved here and sort of um, that became sort of my life's passion, my work. Um the interplay of, of politics, you know, so I worked for an organization called the People for the American Way after college, and it was right after um, Florida had purged people who were disenfranchised from the voter rules. They had, um, and as a result, the Republicans won Florida that year. Um, this is 2004. And um, it was the concept that people lost their voting rights because they had been convicted of a crime was really foreign to me. Um, as a Canadian, we actually put voting booths inside of prisons to enable people to vote while they're serving their time. Um, it really doesn't, those connect, the connection between those two things is really based in chattel slavery and a history of trying to disenfranchise black folks. There's no natural connection between those two things. And so watching the ways in which politics had infused itself um, into criminal justice and, and was being used as a sword against 
mostly black and brown folks, um, was uh, very motivating for me to, to sort of see those connections and those links from early in my career. Okay. And then can you give us some highlights just to fill in the blanks of where you've worked in your career and, and where that took you? Sure, sure. So after law school, I clerked for two judges, um, one here in New Orleans on the district court, and then one in Virginia on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then um, after that, I joined um, the Capital Appeals Project. I was there for a very short time, and we started an organization called the Promise of Justice Initiative. And I've worked there for my entire career, and now I am the executive director there. Um, we are an organization that looks to make positive change in the criminal legal system. And um, we are Louisiana-based, and we focus on Louisiana, but we do a lot of different kinds of things. Um, what I have mostly done in my career is civil litigation. So litigation, um, trying to end the practice of overdetention, um, civil litigation, trying to improve the healthcare delivery systems um, in our prisons, um, litigation, um, finding unconstitutional, the extreme heat conditions inside of our, our prisons. And so that has been my sort of focus as my career as an attorney, but we do a lot of, we also do we coalition build, we have coalitions um, to abolish the death penalty. We have coalitions for survivors um, who are criminal justice form, reform minded folks who have either survived crime or lost a loved one to violence. Um, we also represent people um, in their criminal cases. So right now we represent a thousand people, a thousand forty nine people um, who have previous non-unanimous jury convictions, trying to get them relief um, for, for, for bearing the burden of that Jim Crow um, law. And so PJI really, we, we, are, we are open to whatever tool we can use um, to push back against this massive behemoth, which is the criminal justice system in Louisiana. Awesome. And so for a quick background for those who may be new to the podcast, or if they live outside Louisiana, before we passed Constitutional Amendment 2 in 2018, a person could be convicted of a felony in Louisiana with only 10 of 12 jurors finding them guilty. So, Mercedes, the movie 12 Angry Men, right, talks about how you have to get all 12 jurors to agree to convict someone of a felony. And that did not exist here. How is that not unconstitutional? So finally, the courts have said it was unconstitutional. We, we, would, we would have said from the beginning of time that it was unconstitutional. And for complicated legal reasons that aren't particularly interesting, um, we, we didn't actually have that holding um, until uh, 2020. Um, important in this law is that the history of racism is very clear in this law. This law was passed because Black people were being allowed to serve on juries. And our system in Louisiana depended on finding Black people guilty of petty crimes and sentencing them to hard labor. Because after chattel slavery was abolished, there was a labor shortage and there was a desire to maintain a cheap flow of labor. And so through our prison system, a, a, a cheap flow of labor continued. Um, and, and it was with explicit intent to maintain white supremacy within our culture. And that is the origin of our entire prison system in this state. Um, but this law in particular meant to disenfranchise black people, um, 
was a pretty galling thing to still have maintained on the books for so long. Um, and so uh, with the help of J.P. Morrell, who passed up the law in the legislature, we were able to overturn that. And then we um, PJI brought a case called Ramos v. Louisiana, and the Supreme Court found the practice unconstitutional in 2020. Um, and then we filed a thousand petitions, and we continue to fight every day um, to get relief for those people who were previously convicted before the law was ruled unconstitutional. And I'm going to skip ahead for a minute because you mentioned Ramos versus Louisiana, but Edwards versus Vanoy, is, am I saying that right? Yes. Uh, declared, and that was a Supreme Court case that declared that unanimous juries couldn't be a retroactive ruling. Under federal law. So actually what Edwards Vivanoi said was, state of Louisiana, we have every faith and belief that you, state of Louisiana, are going to do the right thing here. Because we told you in Ramos that this case, that this law is racist. And we told you that it was negative. And we told you that fixing this was important. But what we're going to say is us, federal government, we're not going to make you do the right thing because we think you're going to do the right thing. If you read that decision, that's really the tone. So there are two avenues that Louisiana, us here, we can do the right thing. We can say as a legislative branch, everybody who has a previous non-unanimous conviction is going to be retried, right? We're, this, is, this is a very clear thing. This isn't everybody will be released tomorrow. I mean, we think a lot of people will, will be released because we frankly think a lot of people who have non-unanimous juries are innocent. Um, but um, you get to be retried. Um, so we could do that. Or the Louisiana Supreme Court could say, this is retroactive under state law um, because we have our own doctrine of retroactivity under state law. So there are many options available to us. Um, and, and, and even though Edwards Vivanoi was a blow, for sure, it's not the end of, of, of the fight. So we're still waiting for one of those two paths of relief. It, except for in Orleans Parish, did our new DA do something on this? Yes. So, well, and, and I just want to say what, what happened last year at the legislature is we brought a bill to say this. It didn't pass, but they passed what um, they passed a task force to look at this. So the legislators are very interested and they, they have a task force to look at this problem to see how they can fix it. You're right. There's a third way that we can get relief. And actually, we've started to get relief in two parishes on this. So two district attorneys, um, Jason Williams and Orleans, has committed to undoing Jim Crow juries um, throughout the parish. Um, and we've already seen, um, I think, more than 30 people come home under that program already. Um, and and he is re-looking at all those convictions. Um, we had uh, we had one client, who, who Jermaine Hudson, who um, had a non-unanimous jury and um, the man he was accused of robbing um, came forward to the DA and said, I made the whole story up. Nobody robbed me. I was a drug addict and I used my money um, and I didn't want to tell my dad. So I made it up uh, and Jermaine served 22 years in prison for that. But those are the kinds of convictions that we're seeing time and time and time again. Um, so that's happening in Orleans. And then James Stewart in Shreveport has also begun to look at these cases and offer deals and, and, re and really um, give them a second look. So 
We're hopeful that other district attorneys will see, hey, look, the sky isn't falling. And um, we're, what, we're, what we're really doing here is we're saying, let's, let's put some, some veracity back into our system. Let's put some faith back into our system. Let's say to the communities that we serve, these folks who were convicted under a law that the United States Supreme Court says is racist and wrong, we're not going to uphold those convictions because what does that say about us? So we're hopeful. Oh, very good. And I just want to acknowledge, because I can hear some light construction in the background, oh, that you do sorry, have some construction. Sorry. It's okay. I just want to let listeners know that there's, if they're yes. hearing things, that's all that is, is some construction in the background. Um, yes, there's some post-Ida storm damage on my street, so I apologize. <laughs> it's We all have to live with the post-Ida stuff down here right now. So we're all just getting by best we can. Um, but as I've repeatedly said, I saw the unanimous jury coalition and that campaign for constitutional amendment two in particular as a great model for making progress in the state because it really utilized all the elements of a campaign that were available to it. How did you get connected to that and what was your involvement in it? Sure. So um, my office began, before we were even PJI, we began bringing cert petitions on this issue. So this has been an issue that we have been working on since before we even existed. And so um, right around when Amendment 2 was being passed, um, folks were sort of reaching out and saying, like, how are we going to do this campaign? And so um, we sent a big email to everybody and we had a meeting at our office and we said, what are we going to do? Um, we partnered up with um, Voice of the Experience Vote, um, SPLC, ACLU, and a, and a, and a lawyer, um, John Sullivan, and we formed a steering committee and we started raising money. Um, and we got some very early grants that we were able to get in and that's how we built it. So I was a steering, I was sort of a founding steering committee member, if you will. Um, and then we hired amazing folks like Linda and some other folks to come on board very early to build out what this was going to look like. And, um, you know, we always use a metaphor in our office because this is how we work a lot, but it's like building the bus while you're riding it and trying to get somewhere. Because, you know, I think what people don't realize is this passed, I believe, in May uh, and the election was in November. And so um, we had a very short window to raise the money and build a campaign infrastructure um, in that amount of time. So it passed the legislature in May. Yes, sorry. And it yes. was going to be on the ballot. Yeah, so yes, it was going to be on November. the ballot. Yeah, that's that's a quick campaign. Yeah. But that's campaign life, right? Like everything happens yes. really fast. <laughs> yes. Yes. So one of the things, and part of why I see criminal justice reform as such a space for progress, is it tends to be bipartisan. That was a bipartisan effort. The unanimous juries was a bipartisan effort. How does that facilitate progress of criminal justice reform? Yeah. So, I mean, in a number of ways, I mean, what was what I think if you're going to look at unanimous juries, you're going to look at this criminal justice reform on a trajectory. You have to also look like starting with JRI. Right. So you start to all a lot of the relationships. So we did justice reinvestment in 2017. Relationships are formed. Trust is built. 
um, people start to look at each other as allies. You have, um, at that time in the Senate, you have Dan Clater, you have J.P. Morrell, you have who are on, you know, Dan Clater, Republican, J.P. Morrell, um, Democrat, um, who are forming relationships and alliances that they can then build upon. And I think that that is an essential piece to this puzzle because if you're going to try and do something big, um, you have to have trust and you have to have um, created a sense. And so one of the things that I never thought I would hear myself saying, but one of the downsides of term limits right now uh, and one of our biggest challenges is that these seats are turning over really fast. And where we used to have long-term, deep relationships with folks on the other side of the aisle, there isn't that breadth of time to develop those relationships. And because of that, um, I think we're seeing a more partisan divide um, within our legislature. And I think that's surprising to a lot of folks in Louisiana. Um, There still is, I think, a certain amount of camaraderie among our House members and our Senate members across the aisle that doesn't exist in a lot of other states. It's not perfect, but there is that. And personally, for me, because of the work that I do, I'm grateful for that. And I think it's really important. So yeah, I think you have to build on wins and trust. And if you're working in this issue area, there are a group of people who have done some good things together um, that continue to thrive. I also think that there's a sense that the sky isn't falling um, that helps build trust over the long term, um, if that makes sense. Talk, talk more about that. What do you mean? As we see progress and as things improve and as people are released from prison who should be released from prison and continue to have vibrant and, and impactful lives, and people see more and more evidence of that. I think I, my hope is that um, people will become more brave in how they think about um, redemption and opportunities for success um, within the folks in our system. Okay. You played at least some fundraising role in unanimous juries. Yeah, I did. Yeah, a little. I mean, it, what it really involved was going to the groups of funders that we had pre-existing relationships with and, and pitching that and, and continuing those conversations. So that was the, the majority of that. How important was it that national donors were willing to invest in Louisiana on this issue? So since Hurricane Katrina, the presence of national funders in Louisiana has been absolutely essential. Um, They have allowed us to transform a conversation within this city and state in ways that are profound. Um, That I I often say to people, um, you have no idea what it used to be like. It was a much more shoestring kind of environment. And now... Um, we have a lot of national funders who are focused on us. And I think for a lot of reasons, one, because we really, um, our system is just that much more broken than other systems. Um, And I think the racist elements of our system are very prevalent in ways that they are maybe not quite so face forward. Um, And also because as opposed to a place like Texas, where there just is a lot of philanthropic dollars that come from within the state, um, Louisiana 
has always struggled to 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 develop those philanthropic dollars for whatever reason that is. So if Katrina helped us develop those connections and those national donors, what what makes them want to invest here? What what do they see in Louisiana that says this is a good place to invest? I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I always have to say that the existence of the leadership of people like Norris Henderson, um, my good friend John Thompson, who died um, a few years ago, but started the resurrection after exoneration. Um, he was an exoneree. He spent 14 years on death row. Um, when he got out, he was very early to talk about prosecutorial um discretion and how we need to be going after bad prosecutors when they lie. And his case sort of hinged on a prosecutor lying. Um, and also the inclusion of directly impacted folks. And so um, uh, Calvin Duncan, who I worked with for many years, who's a board member of my organization, who helped start the non-unanimous jury um, issue. When he was still inside prison, he was bringing sort of petitions. And then when he got out, he became sort of a leader of Yes on Two and, and everything that we've been doing. So we have really remarkable leaders in our community and have forever had them who are directly impacted, who can speak to things in a way that I think has just evolved our conversation around these issues much more quickly than other places. Um, it still remains novel in some communities to include the voice of folks who are directly impacted, whereas I've never done anything in, in my career, not because I'm some genius, but because I came into a community where our leaders were directly impacted folks from the beginning. And so um, it's not something that I, I almost get to take it for granted because of course we do, because it would be silly not to. So I think that's one thing that has allowed us to sustain a really powerful community. Um, you know, Norris Henderson is an absolute, you know, to me, he's everything. He's just, he's just, I am so thrilled and thankful that I get to work um, with him all the time. And I think the existence of someone who builds people up and supports the creation of institutions and who sets a tone um, amongst all of the folks who are doing this work about that we support each other. Um, I, I think that that does a tremendous amount to create a vibrant ecosystem that exists within our state. Um, there's not one shop here. There's many people doing a lot of different kinds of interesting work um, for 72 plus parole project. I mean, the JAC, there's just so many different institutions who are doing wonderful work here. Um, our Innocence Project is incredible. Um, so I, I, I think that fabric, that tapestry, that richness has allowed us to create change here. And I think funders are attracted to that kind of dynamic environment. Okay, that's interesting. So besides the CJR community, who is invested in criminal justice reform? So a lot of people are. Um, a few years ago, we celebrated 10 years of no executions in Louisiana, and um, Bishop Amen um, spoke at that event along with Sister Helen. Um, so the Catholic Church is deeply invested in, in criminal justice reform um, and anti-racism work, um, especially in New Orleans. Um, the business community, we have a lot of leaders within the business community who are really interesting. And they, what they understand is that um, international businesses and international dollars want to invest in a place um, that is forward-looking, 
um, that is utilizing its talent and developing um, an environment where people can succeed economically. And when you have a racist, arbitrary criminal justice system, that is not true. Um, and so I think a lot of people in business understand um, the, the vitality of having a checked system, if you will. Um, so I would say they are very invested. Um, in many ways, um, I would say the Department of Corrections is, is invested, but they understand the role. Um, and they also understand specifically um, with overcrowding among the very older folks who are in prisons today, um, that that is not an effective use of our resources. And frankly, is a moral is not a moral use of our resources either. Um, so I would say they are invested. I would say, you know, obviously we have tremendous leadership from the Black Caucus um, in the state legislature. They're just, we have an incredible Black Caucus in Louisiana. Um, very supportive, um, very dynamic, um, just just wonderful leadership from them on this issue. Um, but but some some really important conservative allies who continue to understand um, the issues that that we have. So I think a lot of different institutions within the state see this as a very cut and dry, we need to get it done kind of an issue. Okay. Within the criminal justice reform movement, there are some folks who identify as abolitionists. And I don't know how big of a portion and they don't even consider themselves reformers to be honest so i don't know if they want to be put under the heading of criminal justice reform but um can you just explain briefly the difference between the two and then are there issues that the two are willing to work together on yeah sure i mean i don't think i'm the best person to like give the official definition but essentially abolitionists believe that we shouldn't be trying to tweak the system at the edges but we should be looking to do away with the system altogether and tactically we need both right so um i have clients who i meet and talk to regularly who are currently in prison and they are suffering and I am not able to turn away from that suffering personally. Um, and so I feel that I have to address that suffering um, in the most immediate ways that I can. I also think that they are living lives that while those lives are harder and than they should be and they're ripped from their families, for those folks who are existing within that system, those are real lives. And I don't I can't discount those lives and suggest that I should do nothing to make those lives better. That's not, I can't do that. I understand that there are people who feel that way. Um, so, so I, but at the same time, am I working to end excessive sentencing to get people out of prison every day? Am I using abolitionist type tactics at the same time? Yes. I think you have to do both. And that is where, after a lot of soul searching within our organization at PJI, that's where we come down, is that we are going to work to depopulate, to reduce the footprint of the prison industrial complex. At the same time, we are also going to continue to try and improve the lives of our clients every day. And that is, at the end of the day, where we come down. Do I think that those that all of us can work together? Yes. I think that people have to decide 
individually, like what their own thresholds are for quote unquote, making the system better. So, um, you know, one of the big debates comes up when you have a Jason Williams on the ballot. And I do that not in my PJI hat, but as an individual person. Um, and are we going to work for a pro to make, get a prosecutor elected? And there's going to be a, a group of folks who are going to say, I'm, that's not my, my bag. And I'm not going to do that. And I think progressive prosecutors is a big thing. I would say that my 30 odd clients who've walked out of prison who had no hope a year and a half ago feel differently. And I, I, I actually, I think we can live in that ambig ambiguity as a community. And some of us can think one thing and some of us can think another, and that doesn't have to, doesn't have to be a huge fight. I just, I see proof of, of the value of having district attorney, Jason Williams and other folks don't. Well, and I, want to say I kind of agree with you here in the sense that it matters that we elect people who are going to move us forward, even if they're yeah, that old adage of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes. And part of the reason you talk about your 30 clients whose lives have been changed. But for me, criminal justice reform, those 30 lives are changed, but every life that touches those 30 lives is changed. Every family That's member, right. every friend, every uh, person that they're going to go help in their lives uh, through their activism or whatever, all those lives, it branches out. So when I used to talk about unanimous juries coalition and say, this, this will impact millions of lives, people would kind of check me for a second and be like, wait, millions of prisoners, you're not talking about millions of of uh, folks that are in the system. I'm like, it's not just the people in the system. It's all right. the people connected to those people. So it does impact millions of lives when we make progress in criminal justice reform. Some of these issues, though, do they butt up against the parishes that rely on prisons for revenue? I mean, there's certainly... The, the way in which money flows within the system is extremely problematic. So much of our system is run through fines and fees paid, paid by people who are within the system. Um, the per diem system in the state, which basically pays a sheriff for each night a person sleeps in their jail, is just a, a very problematic way for us to think about money um, within this system. Um, the way and the you know everything from the the way in which work happens within the system that's an issue that PJI is really interested in looking at how we do work within the system and how various institutions profit from that work. Um, so yes, there is a huge problem with the way that money flows, and because in Louisiana our sheriffs have um, more power than traditional sheriffs do. Um, and are very strong um, politically, I think that impacts things tremendously um, in terms of how we look at and think about our system. Um, and certainly uh, that plays out with district attorneys as well. It's a slightly different dynamic, but yes, I think that the forces which traditionally are seen as not supportive of the work that we're doing in Louisiana, namely the sheriffs and the district attorneys, there is a issue about money that is definitely playing into that for sure. The domino effect of getting Jason Williams elected DA is remarkable to me. I, you're talking about funding and I saw that uh, Mayor Cantrell in New Orleans has just talked about funding parity 
for the district attorney and the public defender's office. That's right. That's right. So, and that was something when Councilman Jason Williams championed before he became district attorney. Um, and I and I think it it's a testament to the changing conversation in our city that the mayor sees the value in that as well. Um, that is another sort of big change post Katrina is that our public defender system is not where it needs to be, but is a, is a much stronger and more vital institution than it was before the storm. And I've talked about New Orleans having the potential to be a model for the state, but I think we're working on it when we're trying to work around some entrenched interests. And frankly, we've had some consent decrees from the federal government that we've had to deal with since Hurricane Katrina uh, and the flooding of the city. How have the consent decrees played into, and if you can describe for folks who may not know that, uh, how what is a consent decree and how has it played into some of the progress in our city? Well, so again, I think it's so much of this is about a conversation interrupter. So um, we have two major consent decrees in the city. Um, one is over our police department. Um, this started, I believe, in 2008 after President Obama was elected 2009. Um and essentially, uh, at least in part motivated by some of the actions that happened in Zanzinger Bridge after Hurricane Katrina, in which officers framed uh, a man for shooting his brother when, in fact, they had shot him. Uh, a horrible story um, at, that led to, to a really hard look at the New Orleans Police Department, um, which up until that point had had its, its fair share. Of, of other issues, shall we say. Um, uh, so the feds came in and they did a consent decree. And that was, I believe, just independently. There is no, um, that is just a consent decree that was negotiated between the police department and the federal government. The other consent decree in the city is, uh, is around our jail. Um, after Katrina, one-sixth of our population went through that jail every year. Uh, it was massive um, and it was very dangerous. And it was um, it was just a very notorious place to be. And um, led by Katie Schwartzman, who's now a professor at Tulane, I believe at the time she was at the Southern Poverty Law Center initially when she filed that lawsuit. Um, she filed a lawsuit against the jail, which culminated in a consent decree, and the Department of Justice came into that consent decree. So the federal government came into that. So it's a slightly different dynamic because that started as a civil rights lawsuit. Um, and, and simultaneous to that lawsuit was a massive push to reduce the size of the jail, which has decreased exponentially. I think it's like a sixth of the size of what it was, um, at its height, um, and, and from outside groups, um, trying to, trying to bring some rationality to pretrial detention, which remains excessive in the city, but at least is much more right size than it did. Um, ensuring we, you know, we have a class action lawsuit right now trying to make sure that people get released on time so that they're not over detained after their sentences have been served. Um, just a massive, massive push from various angles to reduce the size. Um, also because um, essentially because of this lawsuit, Federal detainees no longer are housed in that facility. Um, a, a lot of folks have shifted out of that facility, so it's a much smaller facility than it used to be. Um, and I, you know, I think they've been absolute conversation 
changers. Um, I've watched over my time in New Orleans a sort of, um, oh, well, that's just the way things are kind of attitude to like, things are better, things are different. Um, and, and I, you know, again, with that abolitionist tension, uh, I think it's a hard conversation to have to say, oh, the police are better. But we certainly are seeing less violence from the NOPD than we used to. Um, and I think that's relevant for the folks who are experiencing that violence. Well, a couple things. I think the Department of Justice having a functioning civil rights division is why who we elect as president really matters. Yes. So I just want to make that point. Um, yes. And I think who we elect to all these offices matters, but I also think it's up to the community that's working to help get them elected to continue, as we talked about actually in the video uh, before we recorded, it's really important that we continue to hold people accountable once we elect them so that they're living up to the things uh, that we've elected them to do. You mentioned Katie Schwartzman, who brought the lawsuit against the jail, who has just last week now been named as monitor of the DA. So all of this stuff, again, it's all these dominoes that kind of start with one thing and keep leading to progress on multiple fronts. What elected offices in particular do you see as opportunities for progress to be made in justice reform? So I, I always say this when I'm talking about how we think about this work is that there is no one silver bullet. It took decades and generations to build the horrific you know, criminal justice system that exists. And it's going to take, hopefully not that long, but it's going to take a lot of different kinds of tactics and ways to fix it. Um, and one of the things that I think in Louisiana, we elect a lot of people. Um, and so, we, you know, we elect our clerk of court, which strikes me as very odd. I will say it, it still strikes me as very odd. Um, and so there are a lot of political players within our system, and we really can't ignore any of them because all of them have power to prevent change from happening. Um, and one of the things that we got to learn when we saw what happened to Larry Krasner in Philadelphia was you can have a progressive DA and you can have a good public defender, but if you don't have the judge on board, there's no change that's going to happen. And so initially when I was, you know, just tangentially involved with the flip the bench campaign, um, that it became clear, like we also need to look at judges, um, and so one thing I would say is they're all essential. Um, but opportunity-wise, you know, we have this upcoming sheriff's election. Um, we have a sheriff who he was given a little bit more power over the jail recently and the jail backslid. Um, people continue to get hurt in the jail. People continue to be sick in the jail. Decision-making within the jail continues to be extremely problematic, um, inviting in exploitative shows like Jailbirds. You know, for me, that story starts after Katrina when um, when he, when Sheriff Gossman did not evacuate the jail and people almost died and almost drowned to death within our jail. Um, but, it, but it ends with um, deciding to set women up for a pretrial 
whose cases have not gone to juries and put them on a television show. And, and I think this is a very important point. And I really want people to take some time with this idea. When the person who is in charge of you inside of a prison or jail asks you to do something, that is not voluntary. Okay? So you can say that these women agreed to be in this series, and, and, and you may even believe that each individual woman did, but it is absolutely unethical for the people who house them to make that request. Um, we don't, we don't, the medical community, you know, finally, it's taken them some time, understand that you cannot test out medical procedures on folks who are incarcerated because their food, their shelter, everything is dependent upon the people who control those decisions. And so nothing, it's not truly voluntary from an ethical, moral perspective. Um, and so for me, um, the health and safety of folks who, who end up in that jail is, is paramount. I know legislators play such a big role. We saw that in unanimous juries. But I do think these local elections are really where we have the most ability to have some impact. And you're talking about Sheriff in Orleans. What are the opportunities for flipping or even some of the judicial benches in other parishes? What do you see as opportunity there? So I think the sky's the limit. I just think it's what it comes down to is about candidate recruitment and about people putting themselves out there. Um, what we see with school boards and various other entities is that it's really it's a testament to energy and getting out there. And I think showing up is the first part. Running people against, you know, incumbents is the first part. I mean, um, you know, Jason Williams was the first that that race was the first real challenge to Leon Canizero. Um, many of, you know, we were able to flip one incumbent judge, um, in the flip the bench campaign. I believe it was the first time in like 30 years an, an incumbent had been defeated. Um, historically, Sheriff Gusman has not faced real challengers. Um, and so to me, like the opportunities, it like remains unknown because what we need to do is just start running against people and not be afraid to get a hat in the ring and see what happens. Um, and we're still, uh, we're still sort of learning those lessons. I think there is some fear that plays a role in this sometimes because you're talking about people with the levers of power, the levers, the ability to lock you up or to, you know, bring a case against you. And I think that that sometimes and I know this, and I've mentioned it on a previous podcast, that when Leon Canizaro was the district attorney in New Orleans, I knew people who were advocates and activists who were often really fearful of speaking out. It took a, a great yeah. deal of bravery for, for the advocates who did speak out and for the folks who ran against him. I, I think that's very true. Um, and I think that we, um, to your point about holding people accountable, I think in Louisiana, too often we'll say, well, that's so-and-so's seat or that that's so-and-so's thing. And um, 
and we accede the premise that that person is entitled to that position through be it a family connection or a connection through political allies or whatever that looks like. Um, and so as a result, there just is sort of a lack of accountability um, for various roles within our system. And, That's, but I, I do see that changing. You're very right about that. So how do people connect to your work, Mercedes, the work that you're doing? How would they connect to you? Um, so in my non-political life, I am the executive director of the Promise of Justice Initiative, and we are at Justice's Promise on Twitter and Instagram and um, on the Facebook. Um, and we have a website, just, um, Justice promiseofjustice.org. Um, and then in my political life, I, um, outside of my work hours, um, support Pact for Justice um, and just, and, and, and then a firm believer in the work that they're doing. Um, and um, that's it. That's, those are sort of the ways to get in touch. As always, I'll put links to that in our episode notes. Uh, I'm gonna ask you the last three questions I ask every episode but I always tailor it to the guest. What do you think the biggest obstacle for criminal justice reform in Louisiana is? The power of the folks who want to perpetuate the current system. I mean, it's, it's, that's an amorphous answer, but um, we have to start, start changing the minds of the district attorneys and the sheriffs and, the, and those other players um, in, order to move, in order to move things. Okay. And what's the biggest opportunity? The biggest opportunity are just the amazing folks who've gotten out of prison and are thriving and can, and that the sky is not coming down and that we can just continue to push um, in the ways that we are um, and, and build healthier communities. All right. And then Mercedes, who's your favorite superhero? Spider-Man, because with great uh, power comes great responsibility. I love that you're, my first Spider-Man uh, person. So I love that. Thank you very much for that. And I do love that quote. I think that's a great quote. And uh, we all should keep that in mind. Mercedes, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure having you and exploring unanimous juries a little further, but also the work that you're doing that's so important to the state. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty, Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our Super Lefty artwork, and $1,000 Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.